Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is Jacoby Ballard. Jacoby is a social justice educator and yoga teacher who leads workshops and trainings around the country on diversity, equity, and inclusion. As a yoga teacher with 20 years of experience, he leads workshops, retreats, teacher trainings, teaches at conferences, and runs the Resonance Mentorship Program for certified yoga teachers to find their niche and calling. In 2008, Jacoby co-founded Third Root Community Health Center in Brooklyn to work at the nexus of healing and social justice. Since 2006, Jacoby has taught queer and trans yoga, a space for queer folks to unfurl and cultivate resilience and received Yoga Journal's Game Changer Award in 2014 and Good Karma Award in 2016. Jacoby has taught in schools, hospitals, nonprofit and business offices, a maximum security prison, a recovery center, a cancer center, LGBT centers, gyms, a veteran center, and yoga studios. He lives with his partner, child, and innumerable plant friends on unceded Goshute, Ute, Paiute, and Shoshone land, now known as Salt Lake City, Utah. You can learn more about Jacoby at jacobyballard.net. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Jacoby Ballard. We spent much time discussing the contents of his new book, which is called A Queer Dharma, Yoga and Meditations for Liberation. Listeners might recognize this term, queer dharma, because it was the title of our latest Tarka issue on queer dharma. And so it was a delight to speak with someone else working on this term and finding this particular term uh, useful and fruitful for investigating the relationship between queerness and spiritual practice. So I hope you enjoy the episode. People who've spent time there that I know who are either queer or just progressives more generally, they they often describe it as as the, the kind of progressive culture almost feels more um, consolidated because of the pressure of the yeah of that true. that history. Does that ring true for you? Yeah, I mean, coming from New York, where like anyone involved in social justice, uh, it's like very vast, you know yeah um here it's totally possible to know pretty much every everyone <laughs> doing the work but what's lovely about it is there's not as much infighting because we understand like there is one one very clear power holder here and mm. that is that is what we're fighting more than each other <laughs> yeah how does that how does that manifest in a city like salt lake which for, as i understand does have such a strong um presence of progressive people LGBTQ people, like, how does that show up in an otherwise quite progressive city? The Mormons control the the legislature. So that means like pollution is off the charts here because mm-hmm. Mormons don't believe in regulation. <laughs> there, There's no sex ed in schools because of the Mormons. Yeah. There's, this is one of the states where like tenure um, is up for debate or mm-hmm. could be lost. And when my partner is a pro- professor, so it's relevant to us. Um, and where critical race theory is, mm. you know, under attack or any any gay books in the schools. Last year, my friend Kyle's book, my friend Kyle just won like several awards actually, 
but last year his book was banned from a nearby school <laughs> and it's just about a trans because kid it, like it's just there's yeah. nothing i don't know it's so fascinating to me why that's a threat <laughs> so i guess the follow-up question is why did you go go there because <laughs> <laughs> my partner's a professor and she got a job i see i see um, so she's teaching at um at the, at the university in salt lake yeah, there's a really cool school here that called that's called the School for Cultural and Social Transformation. And oh wow, um, different than a lot of universities, uh, the ethnic studies and gender studies are like under that school, and that means mm. that they can collaborate for funding and and work together more than fight each other as like the two most progressive departments. <laughs> yeah, which is the case at a lot of universities. I grew up in the Northwest and near, uh, near Seattle, and there's lots of Mormons in Washington. And that's one thing I noticed living in New York, because I, I lived in New York for 10 years. I don't think I met one Mormon in New York. Was that I met, new for I you met to one like... and he was trans. <laughs> <laughs> so he'd moved through it, like yeah. he moved past it. Yeah, I've met a couple. In fact, I dated this guy very briefly, who in actually when I was living in Seattle still, who was gay, he was openly gay, but he was still Mormon and going to the church. And one time he actually took me to one of his church functions like by the beach and I could just feel the judgment sort of permeating off them. And yet this sort of like, it was like a passive aggressive thing because they were, they were accepting him, right? Because that's what, you know, the love of their religion teaches them to do to just, but of course, inside they're, you know, feeling quite the opposite. Yeah. <clears throat> and it was so interesting to me because he actually also then didn't want to have sex. Like we, you know, we did other things, but he wouldn't have sex because he was waiting till he was married. But at the time marriage was illegal. So I'm like, so what does this mean? Does this mean that if marriage is never legal, you'll literally never have sex? Oh, no. And <laughs> I just thought it was so insane. And, you know, he, it was it was really interesting because it was like he never actually reflected on that. And later, actually, many years later, really relatively recently, he sent me a message on Facebook and told me that I completely changed the way that he thought about, which was just such an offhanded comment. So I was really <laughs> sort of su pleasantly surprised that I made an impact on that way. <laughs> I think he has had sex outside the confines of marriage. I'm That's happy great. to I'm happy to <laughs> test. <laughs> anyway. I mean, that's like very, that's such a prime example of like Mormon culture and, and, and how it even LGBT folks here, there's not that many queer identified folks, um, but LGBT folks have like, are like very homo homonormative, like are mm -hmm. not just like that. Like the church says no, no sex out of marriage. So even if I'm gay, I'm not gonna have sex out of marriage. That makes complete yeah. sense here. <laughs> I know, it's just mind boggling. Yeah. And there is there, I mean, can you get married in um in uh Utah? Or yeah. is it yeah, because of the federal yes, exactly. At the federal, yeah, at the federal level. Of course I should know that. <laughs> so it's so lovely to speak with you today. I've been really enjoying reading your book, A Queer Dharma, Yoga and Meditations for Liberation, which came out relatively recently. I believe in 2021. So it's been out for less than a year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what initially, what immediately stood out to me, which was quite kind of beautifully serendipitous, I suppose, is that, you know, we at Embodied Philosophy published this quarterly journal called, called Tarka, and we had published an issue on queer dharma. Mm -hmm. 
I know. So many of my friends sent me that. They're like, look, why are you not in this? <laughs> I know. I was devastated, actually, when I saw your book and then realized that it was almost on this exact same timeline. And and I wish that, you know, someone had put a little uh, chirp in my ear about your work because it would have been wonderful to, to have tried to curate um, uh, something for the issue from you. But perhaps there will be a future opportunity for that. Um, but anyway, just because we share this you know, locus of uh, a term queer dharma, um, which of course opens up so many questions of what we mean by queerness and what we mean by dharma. I thought maybe we could just start there. And uh, cause I'm sure you, you know, obviously you've titled it a queer dharma and not the queer dharma because <laughs> that would perhaps not be so queer. Um, <laughs> so do you wanna talk a little bit about this term and, and how you landed on it as the title for your book and why it feels like a kind of, I don't know, a great umbrella for what you were trying to do with this work. The word queer for me is both like a sexual identity, right? But also a political commitment to anti-oppression and solidarity and integrity with, and, and all the ways that that can manifest in humanity, right? Like you living your truth is going to look really different than, than me living my truth. And I think queerness makes a lot of room for that because we've all been like, it's, it's been attempted to squish us all into little boxes. And so when we bust out of that, we create a lot more space. And then, and then Dharma, you know, I'm coming from both a, a Buddhist and a yoga background. So Dharma in Sanskrit meaning uh, calling or duty and uh, in, in Pali, the Buddhist language meaning um, the truth or the way things are. So I guess through, through so many LGBT meditation retreats, my partner and I would be talking about how this is a queer dharma uh, mm. and and what was brought up there in discussions and small groups and, and meetings with the teachers there was very different than what could be brought up in other, you know, non-queer specific meditation retreats. And I've heard likewise from my BIPOC uh, siblings, but I think specifically like this intersection with anti-oppression and dharma practice, right? Like my work is so, um, nestled in social justice work. And I see the practice as uh, accentuating and grounding social justice work and um, social justice work as making, enlivening the, the Dharma and, and making, you know, the instructions, the, the guidance very real. You know, I see your work as, as being a part of this exciting wave of, of um, those who are working at the intersection of, of social justice and, and spiritual traditions. And one of the things I like to ask when I when I speak to people like you is 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 to reflect upon kind of the challenges of that because it's it's not always a happy marriage, right? There are there you know for my, in my experience as a as a queer person in spiritual spaces, I have, I'm often still very much a minority, and sometimes I don't feel quite like I belong. And then and then also even the social justice component as well. Um, there isn't. Um, oftentimes spirituality is considered sort of, you know, navel gazing and, and outside the orbit of what, you know, you know, true on the ground social justice work should be. There's something like less serious about it or too fluffy and we need to just get to the action and, and, and get things done, right? Yeah. And, um, and you make a lot of really interesting observations about all of this in your book. And so I was wondering if you could just talk about, about how you've kind of grappled with the 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 challenges or the conflicts or the you know sometimes unhappy uh, marriage of these two things social justice and, and spiritual practice. 
you know, it's so interesting that it's not necessarily seen as political dharma practice, um, mm. where there's, you know, so many, so many teachings that are about being in right relationship, whether it's the Brahma Viharas that I write about, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, or the Buddhist precepts or the yogic yamas about um, ethical practice, just again, living our practice in relationship and on the outside. These practices are a tool and like any tool, it can be used as for harm or for healing. For your yoga, um, you know, being brought back by white folks or brought by Indian folks and delivered to white folks here, it just like intersected with white supremacy immediately mm-hmm. and, um, and, and capitalism too, um, which, which I write about in my book. So it, it's, it's been like decades, right. Of like separating the, those, the ideas of, of white supremacy from, um, the ideas of yoga. And, and I think also social justice, yeah, it, there can be this idea that there's no time to like go sit on your cushion. Like how dare you mm-hmm. go to a yoga teacher training or a meditation retreat? Like there's people dying, there's ecosystems that are being destroyed. There's, you know, another corporation to fight. But the risk in that, right, of like going, going, going is that our nervous systems are in fight or flight. And if that's the case, I know from my study of neurobiology that we can't be in our imaginative um, visionary spaces like that that just won't happen in in the mind and so we're just like fighting what what is which you know there's there's harm happening this should absolutely be be stopped but if we're not doing that that work from a grounded sustainable place then we're going to create other harms along the way um and I've, I've, I've seen that in, in social justice workers that so many people have, have left organizations and, and movement work to become a massage therapist or go to nursing school or um, go to a yoga teacher training. And that to me just points to there, there hasn't historically been a lot of healing in the movement. And so people have to leave the movement to seek healing. And you point out as well um, in different ways, but you say also directly in the book that you know you bec- you can become more skillful at the social justice work that you're doing <clears throat> when you take the time and and cultivate the healing that's necessary. And it, that sort of indirectly points to the fact that there's perhaps a lot of unskillful attempts at at, uh, at social justice action going on that you know would perhaps be better served with with doing this inner work. I think especially for for folks entering movement work when there can be so much grief and rage, right? Yeah, because it's it can be so overwhelming. Like, oh my God, the world is shaped by white supremacy, <laughs> or mm-hmm. oh my God, capitalism is destroying the environment. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. It's, this has been happening for for centuries. You know, the, the if we don't ground and heal in that moment, then um, then we're, we're going to be, that's going to lead to our own heartbreak and um, bodies breaking in the work. I guess one response to that could be something like, well, we need the, 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 the inspiration of the rage or we need the, the energy of that anger to actually change things. Because if we get just too calm and too healed, perhaps we'll just, you know, <laughs> go to a mountaintop and, and uh, sit and meditate for the rest of time. Uh, not to say that's not a beautiful future for someone, but for that, that, that idea that, you know, there is 
some kind of threshold, right, of, of you know, what is actually mobilizing and effective and, and, I don't know, you could say positive anger, or maybe we want to use another word, that is helpful where rather than getting to this passive threshold into rage where then it's doing more harm than good. How do you see that um, difference? I think anger is absolutely essential. We, we need it. You know, I wrote a whole chapter about it. It, it tells us that something is wrong. And there's, there's mm -hmm. such immense wisdom in that. And, and we anger is such an embodied emotion because our bodies feel that something is out of alignment, right? In our world, in our households, in our relationships. So we need that. And at the same time, the, the way the human nervous system works, we communicate more quickly, more immediately through our gestures and facial expressions and, and tone of voice than the content of the words. And so if I'm coming at you, with you know with red face and like crumpled brow and some fists and 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 speaking really quickly your nervous system not by any fault of your own is probably gonna like recoil right and and see me yeah. as a threat regardless of like whether i'm saying or, or how right on what i'm saying is so when we let the the energy of anger move through our bodies but retain the wisdom of it then, you know, like a day later, even 20 minutes later, I can come back to you and say, you know, speak about what it was that I was that I was feeling, but from a more from a less threatening place, which is really, you know, being a good friend to the wisdom of anger. Because mm -hmm. if I if I just let the energy, you know, if I send off the email when I'm like feeling the thing and typing so fast, and ah, I have something to say about this. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not gonna land. But it mm -hmm. but if I can let the energy move through me, and then I can speak more gently, then there's a better chance that my message is, is gonna land. Yeah, I mean, anger has definitely been um, a big aspect of my life. <laughs> and I can remember when I was younger, I was, I, 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 I much more kind of, I mean, I still identify with kind of, you know, my, my political attitudes and approaches, but I feel like I was a bit more self-righteous when I was young, as is the case of youth, right? We tend to be a little more self-righteous and think we're always right about everything. And so I, I tended to feel quite righteous in my anger. And then as I got older and I got more self-reflective, then I'd be, I started to develop a bit more guilt and, and, and shame around my anger. And that's something that I still, you know, worked and tried to resolve within myself. And one thing that this kind of segues into that I, as you were speaking, kind of reminded me of in your book is your conversation around forgiveness. The first thing I always think when I read that word, until it, unless it's been unpacked in the way that you beautifully unpacked it in the book, is that I've never really, I mean, I understand the concept of forgiveness abstractly, you know, but I don't, and, and I'm not one to kind of hold on to things. I, I generally let things go if I've had an argument or disagreements. I'm always one, you know, to quickly apologize if I feel like I've um, wronged someone. But you actually offered this understanding of forgiveness in a way that contrasted with an apology. And I thought it was really interesting. And I think I, for the first time in my life, got to a sense of what forgiveness feels like in the body. And I, I think that's what it was, is that it's abstract to me. It's not necessarily like, I don't necessarily associate, oh, that's what forgiveness feels like. But the way you kind of posited forgiveness and apology as, you know, two separate but associated things, I thought was really interesting. So do you want to talk a little bit about the kind of difference of the apology versus forgiveness as you as you unpacked it in the book you know forgiveness really comes from a humble place is connected to the all the heart 
teachings, right, of loving kindness, compassion, and equanimity, especially. So as I ask someone for forgiveness, my equanimity practice balances that request with a sense of, with a knowledge that this person may never forgive me. That's their liberation, right? Like our, our hearts and our bodies are, are freed when we forgive. So I know that that's good for every human being. I also know that it's so difficult and um, against the wiring of, of our nervous systems. Whereas an apology, there's a lot of expectation there mm. and uh, the sense that once I say that, that's then it. yeah, we're, we're done, we're good. It's, it's swept, swept away where forgiveness, there's, there's like an openness mm. to the process. One of yeah. the phrases, you know, I, that I offer in the, in the forgiveness meditation that I put in the book is if you cannot for forgive me now, may you be able to forgive me in the future, which mm. is so important that like, you know, the moment that a harm happens that forgiveness is probably going to be impossible at that moment because we're, we're, we're gripped by, by the harm and we're in survival mode. But if we have the intention to forgive in the future, then it allows this process and the process is largely organic and, and unmapped out. Whereas like the apology is just like, it feels like you're just dropping something and then, yeah, and then it's over. Yeah. I really, I really appreciate that differentiating because I guess it forgiveness feels like you said, it's like opening yourself up to vulnerability. Whereas an apology is sort of an easy out almost and allows you to kind of maintain a certain, I don't know, closeness around the experience. Yeah. Yeah. For you to not really take in the harm that was caused to you or that, that you caused to someone else. Yeah, it was a really powerful part of the book and I really appreciated it. And it definitely encouraged a new kind of way of thinking about these things. Let's talk a little bit about Buddhism because I know it's been obviously a, a huge source of, of inspiration and fulfillment in, in your life spiritually. And you ob obviously talked about um, uh, you know, several Buddhist concepts so far. But I'm, so I'm just kind of curious about the history of that for you and, and how you encountered Buddhism and, and what teachers were perhaps um, the most influential on how you have incorporated Buddhist teachings into your own um, perspectives. I began meditating when I was uh, 17 years old, a wow. senior in high school. <laughs> Lucky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But it was out of a moment of desperation. It was, um, I, w I was doing it for a senior project. I was part of a group that was piloting senior projects and you could choose anything to, to study for a semester each term. And I chose meditation just kind of out of the blue, but I had also been being bullied for, for six years. And so it, mm. um, it taught me that there's something, you know, inside that can't be bullied because it can't be assaulted that like, no matter what anyone says, there's still a goodness inside. The teacher that I learned meditation from then when I was 17, um, I believe was coming from like a yogic and, and Hindu perspective. I lost track of her. I haven't been able to, to track her down, but it did, you know, that was like my very first spiritual practice meditation. Um, mm. And then as I got uh, further into yoga in college, my yoga teacher, I was mandated to, to take yoga because um, we had a wellness credit and uh, I had procrastinated on all the other options. And so I got an <laughs> email from the registrar that was like, you must take yoga now or you will not graduate. 
in two years. If only all registrars sent emails saying you must take yoga now, the world yes. would be a much better place. I know. And my teacher was a 70-year-old woman named Lillian who, um, she was a yoga teacher. She'd been teaching for 20 years at that, that time, uh, but she was also a Zen Buddhist practitioner. And so, um, you know, I was, I would, come weekly to her yoga sessions and then I kept coming even when I didn't have to and then so she saw my interest and invited me to this Zen meditation group and you know I remember her and her partner um, like sitting me down in their kitchen before the sangha was to begin and just like explaining like this is how you hold your hands and here's a short explanation of why and we sit and then we walk and then we sit and this is what that's about and you know the meditation felt um grounding and, and important, of course, but also the sangha there that gathered in her basement on, at eight o'clock on Sunday mornings was just beautiful. There was, a, there was a woodworker and there was a plumber and there was a university administrator and a poetry professor. And then, and then Lillian and myself, and sometimes a friend of mine would come, but I was usually the only college student. And the, the, the sangha was just so beautiful that we could like find love and care for one another coming from such different places. I think that kind of unbeknownst to me consciously taught me a lot about social justice, actually, like that, mm. that there is a way to find a common place to be together. And then from there, I, I studied Vipassana meditation. I went to a couple of Vipassana retreats. You did it those 10 day. I did. I did with <laughs> the recording. Yes, with the, you start at 4.30 in the morning and you meditate till 9.30 at night. It's a really rigorous schedule. And then also, I don't know how Vipassana is doing it now, but um, around 2000, you would have a video recording of SN Goenka um, that you listen to his Dharma talks at night. And then there's a like residential teacher, but because Goenka was giving all the Dharma talks, it didn't really feel like the teacher was really the teacher, like they yeah. weren't holding space in mm. the same way um, or taking questions. And that, you know, just the, the in-depth uh, study of, of meditation, the, the long hours, um, I processed so much from, from my life in, the, in those 10 days, like, because there's, there's nothing else happening. There, you're, you're not allowed to read. You're not even allowed to do yoga. You're not allowed to uh, write in a journal. And so I was just like digesting like memory after memory and able to like bring that to the cushion and settle some things. There was a period when I wanted to do one of the Vipassana retreats. Um, I, I mean, now I, I practice with a, a teacher and I do well before COVID, of course, we did retreats a couple times a year, um, but it's not quite as as as, as uh, strict as Vipassana in the sense that you can still, you know, journal and stuff like that. Um, and, and only part of the retreat is in silence. But I remember the like hearing about people in New York doing these Vipassana retreats and and I often thought it seemed like there was this attitude of sort of doing it almost like you did an ayahuasca retreat where you just sort of go and it's a really intense experience and you're sort of looking for the experience but there isn't so much of a consideration of of leaving and then integrating that work yeah, do you th do you true. yeah is it, has that, has that shifted at all in that context? I mean, obviously now I feel like there's so many teachers that are, that are encouraging that sort of integration. So there's more, it seems like even now, 10 years later, there's much more resources around that. Yeah. I don't, I don't know with that style, with the Goenka Vipassana style. Um, I, 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 I did two retreats and haven't gone back mostly because 
then I found the the insight tradition tradition and mm. um, the, the practices of loving kindness and compassion and and equanimity especially um, and uh, just saw so much improvement in my relationships through those practices that I, I was just like, why? <laughs> like I can yeah. focus my mind and practice these other styles of meditation. Why go back to this like really strict form where I'm not actually becoming a better person. I'm certainly like mm. becoming more attentive to the present moment or the sensations in my body or experiencing my body as a flow of energy instead of a, a solid thing. But I wasn't, I wasn't becoming a better person. Yeah, I mean, insight seems. I mean, I, I'm I'm so impressed by Insight Society. I think that they are just incredible at their, the ways in which they've kind of, just evolved and become more inclusive. And, um, and it's just a really really impressive organization. Um, is are the LGBTQ uh, retreats that you've gone on at? I was actually pleasantly surprised by the fact that they happen, it's upstate, where is it again? Yeah, the Garrison the Institute. Yeah, I've, I've actually been there for a different retreat, but I wish I would have known about the queer retreats. Oh, it's great. <laughs> are they are they run by Insight? Well, the teachers are from Insight. It was started by okay. Madeline Klein and Larry Yang, um, okay. trying to bring LGBT retreats to the East Coast. And at the time, they had started um, at Spirit Rock and there was LGBT retreats there on the West Coast, but Insight Meditation Society of Massachusetts apparently didn't didn't see the purpose of an LGBT, LGBT retreat at that time. So um, Madeline and Larry were like, "We're gonna we're gonna do it somewhere else then. <laughs> we're we're trained in this tradition. We'll we'll hold it somewhere else." And so they hold it held it at the Garrison Institute, and that started I think in 2011 or 2012, and it's still wow. going. And it's still going. Even what about during COVID? Have they brought it back yet? During twenty twenty, I'm I teach yoga for the retreat now. So oh, lovely. Um, during twenty twenty, we taught it online, and then last year, a number of our regular teachers had different like family and health things going on, so we didn't do last year. Then it's supposed to be back Memorial Day this year. Memorial Day this year. Memorial Day is what day is that? End of May. End of May. That's right. I always get them confused. Yeah. <laughs> End of May. All right. So anybody who's listening, um, you heard it here first. Uh, <laughs> so I, I'm curious actually about your, because you wrote in the book that, you know, the, the retreats are generally in silence. So there isn't, you know, you kind of think, oh, you know, uh, joyful queer people together having a party and meditating on the side. <laughs> That's, you know, um, and yet it's in silence mostly. So even there isn't even that sort of our, you know, traditional sense of community building that we might, you know, right. associate with whatever that term is. So what do you think are the benefits of, of queer people having a space of silence together to do this work? I think my experience is that it allows for greater affinity. Um, whereas, you know, if we were speaking the whole time, we would inevitably find our differences. Um, that's interesting yeah and perhaps be very catty <laughs> about it as queer people can be um, but sitting in the silence you know there's there's people from their all the way like from the early 20s up to like their 80s and everyone's lgbtq identified and you know there's just so much held in that room and you can it, you can feel it it's palpable um, and there are there are 
one or two meetings with the teacher where you'll you'll meet in a group of like seven or eight people with one of the teachers to talk about what's going on in your practice and how they can support you and it's not those meetings are not an opportunity to cross talk it's just like the teacher talking to you and then the teacher talking to me and then the teacher talking to chance and then the teacher talking to to sonia um so you get to witness a bit about what's going on in one another's practice without getting involved in mm. it and um it that's beautiful i think it allows all of us to to hold space for one another's processes um without getting it entangled or or enmeshed and also because we're we're spending the whole day you know really feeling into our bodies and feeling into our hearts um witnessing hearing what's going on in one one another's lives in the midst of that process it just lands in a different way mm. um and so then when silence is broken at the end of the retreat um people go you know go talk to someone that like they may have heard in one of those group sessions or someone that sat beside them or behind them that like you know you get to know so much about one another in the the silence there's there's very few people in our lives that we're usually silent with like probably just the people that we live with if we're silent around them at all um and so you know i could notice like when my friend emily wasn't there to when she was like missing a morning sit and just like beholding that in my awareness wondering what's going on but not able to check in with her and then oh now she's back and she's like she's coming for the rest of the day okay oh and then it's morning again and she's not there um or you know um noticing like the person in the dorm next to me and like when he goes to bed or when he gets up or um yeah, just so much about how how people occupy and move through space um, mm. that can be communicated without words. Yeah, I really, I really appreciate what you said about um, the way in which almost when when we lead with our so called personalities, <laughs> we discover our differences very quickly, and and that the being in silence together allows us to, as you put it, access this kind of affinity, but also just discover a common ground that perhaps in just the noise of communication, we lose touch with. And um, I just think that's really beautiful to kind of reflect on. And it's it leads me to something I wanted to ask you about. So um, just to get a little bit of context, I've been doing these series of, of Chitheads interviews that I'm uh, that I'm calling the radical theology series. And I've been talking to kind of theologians from different traditions um, uh, as a way of exploring the concept of theology and expanding our understanding of what that can be, both our understanding of what God is, both our, and our understanding of, of kind of the divine. And, and so, for example, I'll be interviewing like someone who uses the concept of, of theology and the concept and the con text of Buddhism, even though Buddhism doesn't have a theos, right? It doesn't have a God in the, in the kind of traditional religious sense. And so some might say, well, theology is not kind of appropriate to that tradition. But anyway, so that's kind of the context, but it, it made me want to ask you, even though I'm not including that as, you know, this interview as a part of that series, just because um, I don't think you identify as being a theologian. Um, but I was, but it, but it, I did want to ask you just if, if there is a, 
if if the concept of divinity makes sense for you in in your own spiritual practice, if that's something that resonates at all, if there's any utility to it, as far as you know, as from your perspective, um, and what that might look like and what that means. Yeah, I think of it. I mean, yeah, through a Buddhist lens, um, it's. I think of it as what's precious within each of us, and and magical, mm. and and wise, and true, and full of love. That's that's in in each of us. That's in all living beings. Um, mm. And if we can recognize that, then we're going to abide by ahimsa, <laughs> because yeah. I can't hurt the divine in like you know in hurting you or even squishing an ant like that's that's part of creation um mm. which I, I think that's so important in social justice work right because in circumstances and policies of that create injustice there's a dehumanization that happens or a disregard of an ecosystem or an endangered species or the water or the air um but if we see it as like full of divinity, <laughs> then that might shift things for us. We might behave yeah. and speak differently. How do we cultivate a sense of that? Um, what we could call it divinity, we could call it a common ground uh, or that sense of, um, of we might say perhaps necessary affinity with those who are on the other side of the spectrum from us in terms of their political ideologies and and um, and sense of what's necessary at this particular time, um, because they seem to be you know it's easy for me to go to an LGBTQ space and to feel affinity towards other queer people like that's not hard, um, but I'm I'm you know, and it seems like it's becoming more and more important for us to ask this question because there is such a profound divisiveness, right? There's, yeah. especially in the United States, but all over the world, yeah. we're seeing this incredible division, um, really quite down party lines, it seems these days. Um, and so how do, how does our practice, you know, how do, or how does your practice um, help you navigate the, the kind of, I don't know, the anger, the difficulties, the challenges that arise when you have to interact with, with those folks? I think remembering within the teaching of compassion that hurt people hurt people. Mm. And so I think about, you know, people in white supremacist movements, for example, and they come into those movements for belonging. They come into those movements um, for a sense of purpose, um, uh, even out of like self-love that's perhaps mis misdirected. Um, mm. Christian Piccolini is someone who started an organization um, that I believe I talk about in the book called Life After Hate, in which he, he's a former white supremacist and he, his organization pull, pulls people out of white, su white supremacist movements. And what he says, his methodology is first recognizing why do they join mm. uh, belonging and employment. So his first task in the organization is to create belonging. <laughs> and drop yeah. job training so that like there's there's like real tangible basic human needs that are being attended to um and then the second thing he does is um there's these like dinner parties where um different 
families and, and couples that are part of um, communities that white supremacists really disregard and are violent towards. And they just come together for a meal. And it could be a, a gay couple hosting, hosting them or, or um, a Syrian family um, or an undocumented immigrant family, you know, someone who they've marked as, as other themselves. And, you know, through just like having dinner together, they discover like, oh, you like spicy food, I like spicy food. Or, you know, um, I had this heartbreak when I was a teenager, you had a heartbreak when I was, when you were a teenager. There's a possibility of finding common ground when we're up close to each other. But when we're far away, it's a lot easier to dehumanize each other. Um, yeah. So recognize that that takes incredible courage, you know, by this, those families and those couples that are, that are hosting that person. Um, but it's also a possibility model of how to get through this divisiveness. I think it, um, I think it's going to come from those that are targeted, um, mm. softening and moving in and seeing like, seeing the pain of the other side and being willing to hold it. And then through that process, you know, anyone whose pain is held and seen feels validated and they, they relax and they soften. And then there's a possibility of connection there. Yeah. That's really powerful. Um, and I love what you said. Um, I can't remember the, the individual you were referencing who is speaking to going into white supremacist space, spaces. And, and, you know, we're so kind of in this moment of focusing on the ideas and the thoughts that the other person has and what you were suggesting that, or this individual suggesting is that, you know, those are sort of the epiphenomenon of uh, a choice that's been made to actually satiate some basic needs or to set to, to, you know, whether it was a good way of doing it or not, some right. need is being met. And yeah. when you can look at it that way, it really does humanize the person mm -hmm. because, because, you know, on the progressive side, we, we all, you know, both sides are dehumanizing in different ways and we're dehumanizing because like they're evil for having that ideology, uh -huh. you know, and creating a lot of harm from that ideology. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But they're not going to stop the like play, shame, blame, and punishment doesn't work, right? Yeah. Like you, can, you can lock up white supremacists, but white supremacy continues. Exactly. Yeah. So how do you speak to those folks? Yeah, that's really powerful. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I want to touch on a couple of the other, um, you know, just topics of your book and, 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 and maybe um, there'll be one or two you'd like to reflect on before we sort of... Um, wrap up our conversation, but I just wanted to mention, you know, the, it is a wide ranging book and you go into a lot of different territory. And, and so it's, it's a really beautiful read in that sense. And, and we haven't touched a little bit or quite as much on, on some of the other topics that are obviously very important to explore, which is, you know, yoga and capitalism, you mentioned it a little bit, but obviously we're talking about, you know, um, uh, about engaging in spiritual practices that have um, that have become popularized in, in our culture because of a history of capitalism, colonialism. So then you talk about cultural appropriation as well. And you also have a chapter on liberatory, liberatory models of yoga and Buddhism. Uh, and so I, I was wondering if you, you know, based on that, you know, history of, of appropriation and capitalism, um, you know, you're, you're kind of offering these, these alternative models. And so I'm wondering what the, or if you could share with the listeners a little, some of the features of, of these liberatory models of, of yoga. 
Mm. Well, I, I featured an organization called Holistic Life Foundation that offers yoga in schools in Baltimore and mm. um, Yoga for 12-Step Recovery that offers yoga to people in recovery. And um, East Bay Meditation Center that's located in the heart of Oakland and has always centered um, the people of Oakland that have, that have been there for, for longer, which is largely um, people of color and um, people living in poverty. Mm. Um, so when, when a project is, is the leaders are very grounded and are, are part of the community that they want to serve, um, the offering um, can be more valid uh, because they're meeting their community where they are. And also their community can see that, oh, you've, you've been where I am now. And like you've been in the, the throes of addiction. I am there now. You're now living like a balanced, healthy life. How I, that means I can also get there. Right. Um, so I think, yeah, just being part of the communities that we serve is so important, which doesn't necessarily mean that like you can't serve people of color if you're white, but um, there does have to be a lot of personal work and a lot of humility given the history of colonialism and and white supremacy and, and racialized violence. Um, and then really integrating the, the philosophies into how they run the organization. Um, Holistic Life, the three founders now teach very few of the classes um, because they've now trained a generation of youth that have that started in their programs as as kindergartners and then and then went through their programs. Um, they lost some of them in high school, but they really got them in the like the elementary school and, and middle school years. And so then those youth come back to them, um, mm. you know, mostly around like the breath really worked for me. Like I was about to hit my sister and I took a breath mm. um, and they see it in like really practical ways impacting, impacting their lives. Um, and then holistic life also reports that, you know, because the youth become um, practitioners of, of yoga and meditation, they inevitably bring that home to their families. Yeah. So it's like a way of disseminating it um, uh, cost free, right? Like their families don't have to pay for their like teenage son to like, sit them down and teach them how to breathe a grounding breath. Um, and then, you know, they're, all of these projects are very real about uh, social injustice in, in our world. They're not trying to avoid it. That's, that's uh, in many cases, the reason that they started. Whereas lots mm -hmm. of yoga studios or even retreat centers um, are conceived of as like an escape from like yeah. the issues of our world. So these projects are very much embedded in the issues in, in our world and seeing yoga and Buddhism as offering tools to actually get through this, to like help with gentrification in the case of East Bay Meditation Center or to, to help um, with, with addiction or um, even gun violence um, as is the case with, with Holistic Life Foundation. Mm. Wow, I'm glad you mentioned all those centers. We'll have to also include links to them in the show notes so people who can, people who can um, support them and and explore their work. Um, I wanted to ask also about this chapter that you did on teaching queer and trans yoga, and I guess my my question is, you know, what is what's queer and trans yoga? How is queer and trans yoga different from uh, 
non-queer and trans yoga? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that question was the reason I wrote the whole book. (laughs) That question from mainstream yoga communities. Um, The context is different. The community is different. Uh, the application of the teachings, um, you know, varies on, on, on who's in the room. Um, we bring our whole selves into the room. And um, sometimes that um, still involves, um, you know, some degree of dissonance or harm that can happen within our own communities. Um, and there's also an understanding that, like, I don't have to explain or just defend myself in this space. Like, my life's, mm. my life choices make sense to the space holder, and they make sense to the other people here. And so that's not even, um, that's not even, I'm not going to say it's irrelevant. It's actually incredibly relevant. It's, 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 it's a source of our, our commonality um, and, and a source of our sangha. Um, it's also, you know, like, what, what people wear, like there's a queer aesthetic in the room. <clears throat> I, I often play music that's, that's um, by queer musicians um, or, uh, you know, songs that have, have been cherished by queer communities for like generations now, you know? And so then when people hear that and they're like in their bodies, they just come alive because like mm-hmm. our bodies, our hearts feel it. And I think in queer trans yoga, there's not, there's not a holding back um, of that that aliveness in a way that there can mm-hmm. be in straight spaces. Yeah. Um, it's it's funny. I, I'm running a book club right now, and there's a queer track and an ally track. And the very first session I held, um, the queer track when they all signed on, they didn't know each other, right? They all signed on, and they're like, "Hey, y'all, great to see you. Oh, look at your bicycle!" Like chatty, chatty, like celebrating one another. And then the straight folks just like waited. Yeah. For me to show up <laughs> very straight laced right um yeah. and so there's like there's a freedom in in queer and trans yoga that um i think lots of queer people have experienced in yoga spaces being tamped down otherwise like you're not mm. supposed to snap you're not supposed to talk back you're not supposed to um groan or yeah just like be your whole animal self and in queer and trans yoga, it's very expected because that's how we are in community. So why would we shift that just because there's a yoga mat involved? Yeah, I'm always that one. I'm I'm living in the UK right now, and I, you know, in in New York, I mean, uh, the the occasional groan is pretty normal in a yoga class. I feel like, um, and um, but here, these British people, even more straight laced, <laughs> even more straight laced than the straights of the states. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I'm still I'm still letting it out. Maybe I'll do two instead of five per class. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been a delight, Jacoby. It's such a pleasure to get a chance to meet you. And I was really looking forward to this conversation. And it's been just as much a joy as I thought it would be. It's, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you, Jacoby. I have been speaking today with Jacoby Ballard, who just published in the last year a wonderful book, A Queer Dharma, Yoga and Meditations for Liberation. And it also has a a lovely foreword by Susanna Barkataki, who many of the listeners will be familiar with. Get your hands on your own copy. Thank you so much, Jacoby, for sharing your time with me today. My pleasure.